Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. If you've never heard the show before, I've got great news. It's a super simple concept. We just think teaching is really unique and that almost everyone has had a teacher, coach, or counselor who inspired them or helped them become the person they are today, and we want to talk to them. So every educator we have on is nominated by our listeners. So someone come to mind when we say that? Shoot us an email, teacherslounge at niu.edu. Who knows? They could be on the next episode of the show. Today we have Scott Wickman on, who has worn so many hats through his career from Spanish teacher, counselor, professor, journalist to squirrel trainer. We're going to get into that, but for years he was an associate professor at Northern Illinois University's Department of Counseling and Higher Ed. He just retired during the pandemic and I got to sit down with him to talk about retirement, learning to help people through trauma, mental illness, and pop culture, and of course teaching squirrels. Come on, they think we're not going to talk about that? But we cover a ton of ground in this conversation. But really quick, before we actually get into the show, I want to take a minute and acknowledge that this is the 50th episode of Teacher's Lounge. And over the past you know, year and a change, almost two years, I've gotten to talk to so many fascinating educators. Thanks to you. Thanks to everyone out there who listens and has taken the time to nominate someone who inspired them. We've had therapy dogs, Korean war vets, comic book artists, rappers, and a few live episodes too recently even. And I'm super excited to keep them coming. So please keep sending in educators, anyone, teachers, coaches, counselors. It all fits under the umbrella of educator. But thanks. And now here is my conversation with counseling professor Scott Wickman. I'm a believer in trusting the process. I've had unbelievable serendipitous things happen in my life and um hold on i need to shut a window do what you need to do with those with those squirrels birds well funny you should mention squirrels i may talk about those later i'm in the process of teaching the squirrels in my yard that's one of my big uh retirement activities i'm i'm literally training squirrels um to eat peanuts out of my hand and and so how is I'm, that going so far? Unbelievably well. My my original plan was I was hoping by the end of the summer, but um, I started about a week ago, and they are already approaching me. Whereas when I started, um, it would be I have bird and squirrel feeders in my yard. Um, when they would see me, they would scatter at first, and so it's been this gradual process of reinforcing. I have actually several follow-up questions on this, which because recently, oh, recently okay. there's there's a tremendous video that's from uh, WTTW, the Chicago PBS station. Yeah, yes, that I is uh, Joel Brown is his name. He's a professor, I believe. Brown is his last name at I, I believe UIC, and he does a lot of studies about squirrels. He's a researcher, and there's an amazing video that he has where he's talking about. Uh, you know, gray squirrels and fox squirrels. And yeah. he's talking about what neighborhoods they choose to live in and why. And for some reason, like there are specific kinds of squirrels in specific socioeconomic regions. And it's like almost 100%, uh, you know, like you can almost stratify it by zip code of where these squirrels live. And I was so fascinated by it. And it's been, it's been rent free in my mind for the last several weeks. And now I have a squirrel forum. I'm so excited. Are they are they mainly gray squirrels for you? Or are, are they the, the kind of brownish fox squirrels? So interesting that you would bring this up. So before 
before I decided to train them as a researcher, like the things that I did as an educator, I continue to apply just to my random personal life. Really? The, so, the counseling education comes into oh, play here. 100%. Oh, I love Absolutely. this, Scott. I love this. Yeah. And so how I started, it actually started because I it had a little squirrel feeder, like a little picnic table. It was cute. And um, I was in Blaine's Farm and Fleet. I picked up a little squirrel feed, some peanuts, and I'm like, uh, I'll leave them out in the yard. And suddenly it was like a whole world of nature had come alive. Um, and there's a metaphor in it too <laughs> for me in that I've lived in this house for 20 years and I had no idea of what was going on outside of my house until I retired, which is analogous to the entirety of my life. <laughs> right. Right, but, but I started talking about that because um, what, so when I saw suddenly a bunch of squirrels and birds flocking in my yard, and then I started to notice the sociology of the squirrel community. And there is a hierarchy, a squirrel version of a pecking order. Like now I have about 10 squirrel feeders in my yard. Some are higher up than others. And it is a position, the higher up someone goes, and I just place these feeders randomly, but this, it's, there is a whole status among the squirrels. <coughs> Additionally, between the fox squirrels and the gray squirrels, no one else has ever mentioned this to me other than you right now, but that's part of what I've been studying in my yard. So um, the gray squirrels, they are, I think of them as cash and carry. So they go to this tree, they take the food and they leave. Whereas uh, most of the time, the red squirrels, they will come dine in, take their time, leisurely graze. And just to cut to the chase, as I've transitioned into now training them, I find that the, um, the fox squirrels are much more likely to approach me. And so, you know, I thought it would be the end of the summer, but two days ago, I had one of the fox squirrels just right by my foot and almost took the peanut out of my hand. So I'm really close with that. Then yesterday, some of the gray squirrels saw what some of the fox squirrels were doing. And so now they're starting to, from a more distant, uh, from a more distance that are approaching me, say 10 or 15 feet away, waiting for me to throw to them. And that's uh, the behavior. <laughs> the behavior and like sociology of those two different kinds of squirrels that you describe yeah. is like exactly <clears throat> what they talk about in the research that lines up perfectly with what the professor talked about in that video. Wow, yes. And I, now I'm gonna transition this into teaching and research also. <laughs> <clears throat> in fact, um, a week from Saturday, I'm co-presenting at a national conference on a similar topic, but as applied to counselor education. It, it's a project that we called the Yay Boo Game um, my, with my colleague, uh, graduate of our program, Dr. Andrew Plath. And 
So when we are teaching about behavior management as a counseling approach, we do an experiential activity that is called the yay boo game. It's kind of like Marco Polo. Um, and so students leave the classroom, the rest of the class comes up with some small activities that we're going to try to influence them to do, like open a window, write your name on the board. One time we got somebody to do the worm on the floor, it was amazing. But all just through a series of yays as they get closer to the behavior and boos as they move away from it. What we discovered in our research is the boos were, were counter-effective. So that the more booing, the less likely somebody was to be able to complete a task. The boos actually didn't get them closer to the no, task. Mm -mm, no, it created um, emotion and affect. And, and part of the point of doing that activity is to show that as much as we like to think that we are logical and rational, emotion plays a huge part of the learning process. And so negative emotion will interfere with the learning really? that takes place. Like imagine with the squirrels, if instead of reinforcing with my calm voice and the peanuts, imagine if they were going in the wrong direction, if I booed them every time or if I yelled at them. I would never be able to train them. Right. It sounds like and I, the way that people talk about with dogs or something, you know, positive versus negative reinforcement. Right. They're like, they're like maybe with some negative, you might get them to do a certain thing, but you're not going to teach like a reoccurring behavior. Correct. And often uh, the use of punishment is reinforcing for the punisher. Like right. it gets what the annoyance or the, the child the child complaining it gets them to stop so then there's a relief for the the person who is uh, delving that out really that's what, so, so next week you're going to be presenting on that yeah yes right and so we think that has big implications for um a strengths-based approach to education which is focusing on what people do well and helping them use those strategies in order to learn about and implement whatever we're teaching in whatever class. Right, which makes As, sense. And it's kind of, it feels like the way that we've been learning to approach a lot of things in education and in, in, you know, in sports, any type of way that we're trying to teach someone. Like, I don't know if you're a big sports fan, but like they even think about it in the terms of like, you know, if do you if you're a coach do you just have your players no matter what they're good at fit within your scheme of what you like to do or do you do you curtail what you do towards what your players actually do well or is it just my way or is it are we going to emphasize the things that people already do well right right i mean it's kind of the vince lombardi approach yeah or the phil jackson approach right to coaching is everyone going to do the triangle yeah <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's interesting. So you got the presentation. Have you been doing a, a lot of, uh, have you been able to continue in your work post-retirement much or do you have a lot of those set up? Well, I like to think as as little as possible. I was going to say, because you, you did mention before we got sidetracked by the squirrels that you feel like the pandemic has 
somehow has been a good thing oh, for you, Renette, right? Well, well, right, because um, first of all, I, I put in my retirement one year in advance before there was any talk of pandemic or anything like that. And then um, just at the end of my career as a counselor educator, where I had primarily been teaching face-to-face -face and refined my strategies, I, I think pretty well. And then all of a sudden, right at the very end, I have to toss everything out and redo my curriculum so that it tailors and adjusts into an online forum, which although stressful, that was good for me to have to rethink all of that as an educator. Right. And, and of course, then I was able to retire and be retired during the fall 2020 semester, which I think was really a challenge for all educators everywhere in the world. Meanwhile, I'm kicked back kind of reflecting and observing about that. But I, I was also kind of recharging my batteries was some good downtime for me. And also to apply counseling theories, knowledge about change and how, how, how to uh, make personal improvement, trying to apply that to understand myself and where I want to go from here. Right. Well, I think it's so interesting because, and we'll talk more about kind of your career arc as it were, and you've held, you've worn a lot of different hats and, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, everything from, you know, Spanish teacher, counselor, you, you wanted to go into journalism. And, you did, yeah. Right. And like all of those things, the thing that I feel like they all have in common where they come together is that they're about people, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And now being retired, is it been difficult to transition and not be in a spot where you are constantly with new people, new faces interacting all the time? Was that a weird transition? Yes, um, it is, and I miss it. But I also appreciated, it. I almost feel like I've been on a sabbatical for a semester or so. It hasn't been a difficult transition from being around so many people and interacting all day, right. every day to retirement. Right. So right around the time of the pandemic beginning and when we were in quarantine, my social media life changed pretty drastically. And I started to interact with many more people who had like experiences and interests. Many of my friends um, online, we all share a love for the band, The Replacements. Yes. And by having a love for that band, that we also have other things in common, personality-wise or life experience that people who listen to The Replacements have. And by the way, just to go meta here, I believe that in teaching, in education, I am bringing myself into that room. And so I'm going to be using myself as part of what is happening, like we're doing right now. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I know like with the pandemic, I feel like you've, you've seen a lot of people take up new hobbies and things like that. And, and you're like you mentioned, like you're really you're a creative guy and you've you've done some performance and some music and stuff in, in the past. I'm curious, like how has the pandemic impacted your relationship with your creativity? Well, I, it's kind of forced it to take different new directions, but it's the same 
like the same inspiration for studying the sociology of a community of squirrels, which by the way, also has incredible animal assisted therapy effects on calming and reducing anxiety. But that, that same impetus I also use with Ancestry.com and I do consultation with people who are seeking to find people who were adopted and seeking to find information about their birth ancestry. And I've been able to help 13 or to 15 people do something like that. And so I feel like the same things that I was using in the classroom to support creativity, I'm able to channel them for myself in a different direction. That has got to be yeah. a really emotionally charged journey to take people on to with those dozen or 13 people to yeah. discover that. Well, it is. And that's often the unexpected part that people are surprised at how much it affects them. It seems like it would be just gathering information or light, but it gets that core identity. Right, which probably helps saying like your social or you know your counseling background of, of yes. trying to help prepare people for what that's going to be. Yeah, and um, I also actually um, I was on Facebook right before we had this conversation, and coincidentally, one of my former Spanish students from thirty-ish years ago was just commenting on how we used music and songs in our Spanish classes way back in the 1980s. And I think that when you add that creativity, I think it taps into people's natural desire to grow and develop. And so, so, so the learning that is involved with that becomes like not a chore, but kind of something that happens naturally through the experience. Right. I mean, you sent me like a news clipping, an article from the 80s when you were a Spanish teacher. Yes. And I was really fascinated by this because there's a whole section about the style of teaching was, it was like a total physical response. Yes, I love that, yeah. And I was thinking about it because, you know, I'm someone that you know took three years of Spanish through high school and in community college. And I feel like I don't know anything. I could conjugate the hell out of a verb, maybe. I think that's, right, about, I think exactly. that's, I think that's about it. But I was yeah. I, like, if you could describe it a little bit more, there were people standing on chairs, screaming out windows. Yes, yes. That was so fun. But, but what, um, what the total physical response of, for language, second language acquisition, um, is based on is how we naturally learn um, our first language. And we are not expected at birth to come out of the womb conjugating verbs in the subjunctive, subjunctive mood. But instead, <laughs> but instead we have people saying things like, hi, wave hi back. And so, so, the beginning of Spanish one with the total physical response method is me telling students what to do. And I, I like to, to this day, I like to start all my classes with some shock and awe. And so I would say um, very rapidly, within the next 45 minutes, you will be able to understand what it means to Da la vuelta, toquete la dar, siéntate, um, rascate, 
El Vecino, something like that. And people are like, oh, no way. But then we start the commands. And so I tell people in Spanish, stand up, turn around, scratch your head, open up the window and shout out Spanish is number one. And so they do that and it's fun and engaging. And it also sort of fits with the natural, I think, flow of how learning and growth and development happen. That's so bad. Again, I, is, I, I hope that that's uh, style or some kind of mode of learning, at least for Spanish that happens now as, as someone that maybe didn't have the most ideal experience learning. Sure. Just, just, just when and when to and not say vosotros. <laughs> right. Yeah. The whole vosotros. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a whole thing. Is there, I mean, like when you're moving from Spanish to counseling, you know, mm -hmm. teaching that, are there a lot of parallels that you can draw in kind of those styles of, of trying to teach and those styles of trying to reach people? Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to engage people through as many modalities as possible and in a way that's going to be meaningful. Yeah. So, so I just described one thing about Spanish and I'm going to add some other things. So, in order to help the learning sink in, like we would, I would sometimes try to create catchphrases or sound bites or little funny sayings, or we would take a grammar rule and turn it into a song. Yeah. Like one of my favorites was this, and these were just, cre I didn't sit home, think this up. It just, we co collaboratively created this ourselves. So in order to know what order to put pronouns in, in Spanish, we created a chant that went indirect before direct, reflexive first of all. <clears throat> indirect before direct, reflexive first of all. Yeah, indirect before direct, indirect before direct, reflexive, et cetera. Yes. <laughs> You know, I, I read the article that you, that you sent to me that is, you know, kind of gives you a brief biography. And there's oh, a, yeah, there's a section of it where, you know, it talks about how, you know, you were teaching high school Spanish downstate in southern Illinois or central yes. Illinois. Southeastern Illinois. Southeastern Illinois, and then transitioned into counseling. But I didn't quite get a full grasp of, of what it was that brought you from you know changing career paths from you know teaching Spanish to counseling was it just the relationships with students and trying to affect them in, in a different way or what was it that led you to to move from one thing to the other well first what I, I think that um, all helping has in common is relationship and the importance of relationship and yeah. so I'm trying to create a sense of community that we're all in this together and it's a safe space and that I'm also applying the principles of person-centered counseling to making a student-centered classroom um, etc but I, I will tell you about that journey um, which so, might loop everything together so when I came to Northern Illinois University um, I was really interested in psychology. 
but I had heard that to do anything with psychology, you had to be in school for at least six years. And I thought there's no way I want to do that. So I had a journalism scholarship um, at Northern. I, but there weren't many jobs in journalism and everybody told me you need to get a teaching license to have something to fall back on. After I graduated, I thought that I was going to be a foreign correspondent and you know solve the problems of the world. But instead, I, it was very kind of a romantic notion like Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, going down to Southern Illinois, Southeastern Illinois and starting over. And so that's how I got there. And then um, while I was in the classroom, I started out with four teaching four Spanish classes and two English classes, but kids loved my class. And so then the next year I taught six Spanish classes. And the year after that, um, I had to give up my planning period, my lunch period. I think I taught eight classes that third yeah. year and it just, it just kept building. And it, it, it was about having relationships though and creating that safe space and creating an environment where we've got each other's back. And let's have fun. William Glasser, founder of Choice Theory, says that fun, which includes creativity, is one of the five primary human needs. Mm. And I also, uh, underlying whatever it is that I'm teaching, I'm trying to send messages like, um, be who you are, be your best version of you, um, be different. You don't have to be what everybody else says that you're supposed to be. So I'm trying to convey that in how I'm relating to students and how I'm teaching. Yeah, and so you, you had that and then the transition from that into counseling. Oh, into counseling. Into counseling, yeah, how did you get there? Well, so um, again, when I, when I arrived at Northern for college, I was mainly interested in psychology, but I also liked writing. And, and so then I was doing so much informal counseling with the kids before school, after school, um, lunch, et cetera, Spanish club. So this was a school of a little over 400 students, maybe 425. And I wanna say there were almost 200 kids in Spanish club. It was so, we just had such a good thing going on. And so I wanted to take what I was doing there and one have more formalized knowledge on how to counsel. Right. Um, but what, as soon as I got into my master's program for counseling, I knew I wanted to be a counselor educator. And so I, I, and I, during my doctoral program, I worked as a mental health counselor and as a school counselor, all en route to doing what I've just retired from as a counselor educator. Is there a is there a total physical response uh, it, it, version in the therapy world? Is that, well, is that, is that adventure therapy? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So I had a different answer, but that was even better. <laughs> um, but but what I do, I I'm a big fan of using experiential activities, and um, 
working online and through Zoom forced me to be much more intentional about this, but mm. in a perfect world, first students are going to read about the material and then we're going to come have a discussion about it and possibly see a video of someone doing what we were just talking about. And then we're going to have a chance to put it into practice. Right. And so, so I'm going to design some type of activity. And I, I don't think that the learning happens in the activity itself. The learning happens from us processing what just happened and collabor collaboratively making sense together of what we've just experienced. It's really interesting to me, you know, you know, teaching students to be counselors, teaching, especially, you know, young people, how to help people who have been through so much process, grief, and all sorts of things, right? Mm -hmm. It actually reminds me of, you know, speaking of creativity, I know you co-hosted a podcast. Oh, right. Mental illness and pop culture. That's, yes. And this, this morning, I was listening to the episode that you did about Goodwill Hunting. Yes. Okay. Which is, is a movie I love. And, you know, you guys are talking about how Robin Williams' character, who is, you know, the counselor in the movie. Right. Right. You know, it makes progress with Will, with, with Will Hunting, with, uh, you know, Matt Damon's character, you know, not only through just like being real with him and, and calling out BS, but also by like talking about his own life experience and like related right, him in like right, real life right. terms and like talking yes. about like revealing part of himself to it. And I think that's so fascinating of like, you know, what that balance is as a counselor where you're there to help you, like you're there to be a helper for them. And, you know, you don't want to make it completely about yourself, but you want to connect to them in a certain way. And that must be really difficult to, you know, try to train people to be in that, to really know that balance, especially when they might be younger and maybe not have some of like the adult experience of people that they might be trying to help, you know? Well, yeah, 100%, definitely. Wow, so there's a lot. I know there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> For somebody who wants to go into helping, they, they want people to feel better. And so it's very common initially when I'm teaching people to do something that would be challenging with clients and for them to say, but I don't want to make my client feel uncomfortable or I don't want my client to have to experience any uncomfortable feelings. And if you think about it, often that's the whole reason somebody came to counseling is because they want to work through something and they know it's going to get harder before it's going to get easier. And there's a Tori Amos line, I love quoting music, and she says, I'm okay when everything is not okay. And that's the state that we want our counselors in training to be able to arrive at, that they can sit collaboratively with someone in their discomfort without needing to take it away. Yeah, which is probably something that's really difficult at first to, like you said, about where you're actually learning those lessons. It's not going to be from, you know, just reading a chapter in a book about psychology. Right, right. And I have to say, when I started to work in mental health and worked with clients with serious and persistent mental illness, such as um, borderline personality disorder or types of schizophrenia, 
it did not look like I thought it would look when I was reading about it when I was in college and taking abnormal psychology classes. Right. It's very different. And so so I think that's important. I want to go back to Goodwill Hunting yeah, a little bit. Please. Because the qualities that you were describing about Robin Williams' char Robin Williams' character, I want to say his name is Sean. Yes, I, I think so. Okay, um, that really stands out, and and it's very much like what I talk about with the therapeutic use of self, or how I'm bringing myself to my counseling session, to my supervision session to the class I'm teaching. And I'm gonna be using about my things that myself that seem relevant. Yeah, it's, you talk about in the podcast too, that a lot of times in, at least back in the day, and this, this could be the case too, that when you'd see portrayals of counseling in, in movies, it would be a guy leaning up on a chair, not really saying anything. And he would be like, oh, expound on that grief, would you? And then he would just kind of come in for just one line, let the guy talk. And then, and then you know, there really wouldn't be a back and forth or a getting to know each other portion. Yes. And in counseling and in teaching, that's a big part of what I'm trying to provide an alternative to. I'm trying to move away from that top-down hierarchy. Rather than teaching to, I'm teaching with. And the same thing with counseling. And, and another way, so, so some of counseling is about the client, but also some of it is about the counselor. Mm -hmm. And I think a large part is about what's happening in between. And so I'm gonna to try to, to the extent possible in teaching or counseling, I'm gonna to try to use what's available there to reinforce either, uh, somebody moving in the direction that they are seeking in counseling or what I'm trying to teach um, through instruction. Right, and obviously through those relationships and interactions you're having with people, like like you said, like priority number one is, is to help the person get right. to where they wanna go. But at the same time, when you're having those type of like deep conversations about issues and, and you know, providing a little bit of, of yourself, like I have to imagine it's impossible not to learn things about yourself and to use that information to not only be a better counselor, but just to be a better person as a result of it. Yeah, definitely. In, I want to say every syllabus I've ever handed out, which is hundreds, there is a paragraph that I say um, that I'm going to be facilitating this class through a participant slash manager style. So that at the same time that I am co-learning and co-participating, I'm going to also be facilitating and managing the dialogue. And if everything turns out as I hope it will, I will learn as much or more than anybody else in this um, classroom setting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I don't know how you couldn't have, especially you're dealing yeah. with so many people like that. Yes. You know, I feel like mental health, I mean, and therapy in particular are, and I think the internet has, has helped this a lot, become more mainstream, more openly discussed by people. You know, like we all kind of use therapy language, like, you know, I'm working through something or, you know, I'm just processing something right now. Like we all kind of yes. use that level of language of it right yeah. now. And, you know, I'm, I'm triggered. I, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. And I'm curious, has like, has the way that 
have we just gotten more exposed to it as a mainstream culture now or has the actual kind of way that talk therapy is done has that changed a lot in the last you know 20 years throughout your career too yes it does yes so my direct observation has been in our clinic where i have supervised it every semester for 20 years and i i don't know if i can put my finger on an exact time or year but I'll say about eight ish years ago that we, so when we taught practicum, which is counselors in training, having their very first experience working with real people. Yeah. I used to think of that as counseling light, like it's a safe experience. People are talking about roommates and relationships, family problems, but starting about eight years ago, that, was no longer the case. And we began having to do more and more crisis calls, uh, working with people with fairly profound mental health issues. And, um, and so, to, and as I researched that and also talked with our um, clinic uh, coordinator, um, that is true, not just in DeKalb, but that's true nationwide. And there's, I think it's a generational, I think it's a generational thing. I am right between Gen X and boomers. Some people call my generation, Generation Jones, but it's starting around um, millennials and especially the post-millennial, some people would say Gen Z, other people say the I genera iPhone generation. The Zoomers. The Zoomers, the Zoomers, I mean, have no so the stigma is far so different than it was for boomers or for gen x some of that i think is attributable to work by the mental health professional community in educating to reduce stigma um, like the say it out loud program but in addition to that i think this also goes along with cultural trends taking place Right. Um, with characteristics of those generations and social media. Yeah. Social media. And we have access to so much more information. And I wonder then if that fits in with um, Piaget's information processing, that with all new information, we must assimilate or accommodate. And regardless of which option we choose, that facilitates our own personal growth and development. And so I think that um, people today are able to think with more cognitive complexity about mental health. Mm. And so then you it, change with the practicum too, so where people are kind of able to go in and they don't necessarily start off with the, the diet or light version of the practicum and they kind of move right into the real gist of what's gonna happen when they're in that field. Uh, under close, under close supervision. Right. Yes, obviously. Close yes. supervision, yes. yes. And sometimes in those situations, we will bring a licensed professional into the room or have them in the observa observation room. But, but um, the point just is that the intensity of the mental health issues has greatly increased. I also think social media, both as sort of being helpful in that way, I think that as a society, we are a lot more anxious and stressed 
um, related to social media, creating more opportunities for that. Like, how do I look on the screen? And we have to be paying attention to things that to, or caring about things that we weren't caring about before or thinking about. Right, so it's, it's not only that there's like a stigma that's lifted about mental health, but also there could be, you know, just generally more stress and anxiety or opportunity for stress and anxiety and then a willingness to talk about those those issues. Yes, yes, yes. Right. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, like and then how that how that in turn affects the way that we train people to be counselors. I think it's really fascinating. Yes. And if I could loop this back yeah. to my retirement, yeah. a, a big part of my focus since the end of August, since I've been retired, has been exploring my own mental health and taking all those things that I was teaching about. And now that I'm able to kick back, try to reap the benefits of that myself. So I, I, um, I, I really feel like I'm at a really good point right now in terms of my own wellness, becoming aware of traits and patterns and tendencies um, that I have from my own mental health that are both helpful, but that I also can present challenges. All right. Well, Scott, again, I appreciate you taking an hour out of hey, your, out of thank your day. You. I'm yeah. glad we could talk everything from mental health to squirrels. <laughs> right. <laughs> of course. My, all my obsessions. I love it. All right. Well, yes. again, thanks so much for, for coming on and talking. I really appreciate it. And, and have a great one and have a great retirement. Okay. Thank you. Thanks so much again for listening. And as always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get awesome guests like Scott. Please send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing this, subscribe, leave us a rating, share it. Anything that you can do, it helps us get more listeners and great educators on the show. Big thanks to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ups for the awesome music you hear every episode. It is spelled like sweet and kind birds, K-I-N-D-O-V-E-S. Find more of their music on SoundCloud or their own appearance on Sessions from Studio A on WNIJ. And uh, shout out to Spencer Tritt for making our Teacher's Lounge logo. I have been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.